Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me today, I'm, I've got a light cast today, traveling light, uh, but it's a big topic, and I think we'll have a lot to say, uh, is my partner and Three Moves Ahead founder, Troy Goodfellow. Troy, welcome to the show. It is good to be here. This is a very not World War I-sized cast, is it? It's not, but you know, it's nice and compact like a trench. That's true. This is Welcome to the Cozy Three Moves Ahead Dugout. There we go. So today we're going to be talking about Commander the Great War, uh, which is is sort of a grand strategic uh, perspective on World War One, and I have to say it was recommended to me by uh, Rock Paper Shotguns Tim Stone because as I approach this topic, I you know usually whenever I approach something I don't know much about, I try to get in touch with Tim and uh, pick his brain a little bit, and this is something he cited as being particularly strong, and. I have to say, I kind of went in with uh, medium to low expectations, just because I think I approach most war games now with a, with, a, with a bit of trepidation, and I was really delighted by just how how fun this game is, how easy it is to play, and yet how many of the salient features of Ruler One it it seems to get right. Uh, Troy, what what what, did, what was your what were your expectations for the uh, Commander series heading into this game? I know you have a little more background with it than I do. Well, I played way back in the day um, Commander Europe at War, uh, which was from the same developers. Uh, it's now available as Military History Commander Europe at War because they have the History Channel branding. And uh, I liked it quite a bit when it came out. And uh, this one came out originally in 2012, though now there's an iPad version, which came out last month, which is kind of a hot topic. And I really dug Commander Europe at War. Uh, when I wrote about it way back in uh, 2009, uh, it had it was simple. This is, this is not a very deep or complex war game, and it doesn't have a lot of the deep, complex stuff you would expect in a proper grand strategy game. But it uh, captures you know the military puzzles of the time quite well. Uh, it has it was great to see how uh, this game repeated some of my favorite features of Commander Europe at War, um, and I'd like to see if those are the same ones that you're liking quite a bit. And I was it's kind of refreshing how simple this game is, just how damn difficult <laughs> uh, it can be, and how decent the AI is. It makes some unusual choices, but it seems to, but does put up a pretty good fight, uh, no matter what side it's on, uh, the central powers or the allies. Yeah, and I think to start out, just just sort of tackling how this game approaches World War One, might as well talk about like some of the pitfalls that maybe come with modeling this war because right. I, I think I think Commander the Great War actually handles them quite deftly. Um, and I think the biggest pitfall there there is perhaps is um what you, what you might call like a Churchillian mindset. Mm -hmm. Um where it is very easy for a game like this to go get stuck down a rabbit hole of tangential theaters that require way too much management for way too little reward. And this game hits this really nice sweet spot of giving you this feeling of fighting a global conflict on multiple fronts, multiple theaters, but without making me feel like there's a lot of crap I have to do on the periphery before I can return to the real stuff that's happening on the western and eastern fronts. Uh, this actually give this actually I was I was delighted by how how complete. Uh, 
uh, th- this game felt and how how deftly it, it got at the tension between what we consider the main fronts of World War One, and then the fact that you do need to spend resources on these sideshows because they're really not sideshows. It's this really is a war that will start to be won to some extent on the margins, and I find that a really tricky. I think that is a tricky balancing act to pull off, and I think they really nail it here. Yeah, it's. You know, this is this is a game that's not. It is fairly predictable. I mean, just like uh, Europe at war, the historical players come into the war generally at their historic time. There is a little bit of variation here or there, but you know, when Turkey joins the Central Powers, the Ottoman Empire will join the Central Powers, it's just like did in the past. Um, you can try to push things off, and you know, as Germany invade the Netherlands, I guess if you really, really need that those extra production points, though there's really no reason to. Uh, so it will unfold quite a bit like World War One did, which means you can, you know, use your knowledge of the war to, you know, be ready uh, for this sort of thing. But you really do have to, as you say, keep an eye on those other fronts. And the Russians can't just ignore the Austrian front, and the British really do need to protect the Suez Canal because they get you know, some production from there, and you have to protect Cairo because that is an important victory point, and there is morale attached. Um, the sea war is, you know, it's about the convoys. It's about making sure the blockade holds up, and for the Germans, getting the sub, getting the submarines out and trying to stop uh, the convoys, which is probably my favorite imported mechanic from Commander Europe at War, is that, you know, the resource convoys are just ships that move across the map automatically and you have to weaken them to stop production points to get to your from getting to your to your enemies and that was something that was in europe at war and i was glad to see it repeated here in the great war i didn't play this in 2012 when it came out but i'm it's really it's a simple abstract mechanic that has that really reinforces the importance of overseas supply in this war um, you know, it's very easy for the British to cut off Germany. Um, and Germany's got to make this choice. Does it bust out with its fleet and risk having it all destroyed just so it can get the submarines out there um, to intercept uh, the convoys? I mean, this is, it's so easy to focus on the Western Front and the uh, North uh, northeastern Front and to some extent the Italian Front. But there's always these little reminders throughout the game that this is called a world war for a reason. And you can't just ignore Arabia. I mean, Lawrence is down there doing some pretty important stuff. And take and distracting the Ottomans means that they can't fight the Russians or they can't put pressure on or they can't d- mobilize uh, their troops in other places. Uh, it's This is a very simple game, but it captures some very important lessons, I think. Yeah, and... Turning to the Navy uh, just for a bit, and I think this is where we'll start maybe talking about just the way you play this game, because uh, I think it has this lovely sort of Panzer Corps-esque lightness, uh, lightness to it, uh, but a lot more depth. But turning to the Navy game, because this is something that we have done entire shows on how easy it is to make naval games fussy, boring, irrelevant. They're very hard to make interesting, right? It's very it's very hard to make it especially to combine uh to to combine a navy game with a more traditional war game to an mm-hmm. extent. And here I, I do love that in some ways it is it is just very simple you just you just shuttle your ships around the hexes and uh 
you know, subs are invisible until they attack. These are all some familiar conventions for uh, for a game like this. But again, it is just the right amount of stuff happening on the ocean. You got the little convoys automatically, you know, racing along. And as the German, you get to, you know, you're sort of thinking, okay, do I try to really camp one of these convoy routes? Do I spread out and try to hit them all? Like, how do I, how do I fight? You, have, you, you face some of the same choices the Germans face as they're trying to figure out what sort of U-boat war you want to conduct. Um, and I, I do like how this game, when the U-boats appear on the scene... They are really devastating. Um, there, you have nothing. They're like it, it, this. This game ca- captures actually how desperate things got in the World War One Battle of the Atlantic, uh, because as as much as World War Two submarine combat gets gets a lot of attention, was incredibly important. Um, in World War One, there was just there was just no countermeasure to start out, and so when when they appear, you're really kind of caught flat-footed and it's sort of this all hands on deck moment where suddenly you have to you have to get cruisers out there you have to start like looking into how to fight this new weapon out there uh because otherwise you're going to it will choke you to death like britain needs those convoys to arrive and each convoy carries production points and this is how every country produces stuff uh but britain is basically entirely dependent on these convoys coming from the greater commonwealth and if you can cut that if you can choke britain they can literally do nothing. They, they, their production point yep. just completely dries up, um, and this this really enforces that tight connection between what's happening on the continent and what's happening at sea. They are entirely dependent on each other, uh, and, and this and with the with those with those simple rules of just having you know pushing these ships around, you know having them guard convoys and transports and stuff like that. Um, it, it really does this fantastic job of showing how important and how desperate uh, this this form of warfare could be. The production points the Britain gets from the convoys are especially important because you can only expand your sea transport capacity or your rail transport capacity or your ammunition production by spending and investing production points. You gather a bunch, and that decides how many transports you can build or how many troops you can move by rail in a single turn. Or, since artillery consume a whole lot of ammunition, how often they can fire. So those production points aren't just for producing new units, but for once Britain's produced those units, it's got to find a way to get them across the channel. Uh, So it needs to have invested quite a bit into sea transport in order to get them across the channel. Each country is done separately. Um, I mean, you play them as alliances. You play either the Central Powers or the Allies. But you can't use, say, French production to help the British. They're kind of on their own. There aren't going to be French transports moving those troops across. So Britain's reliance on those convoys and Russia's, you know, this slow colossus with just too much room, too much space to defend, how it invests those production points. Uh, and Germany has to face convoys coming, has convoys coming down from Sweden. So being able to intersect those uh, by the, as the Russians or the British is very, very important. So this everything ties together to this production point mechanic to make every aspect of the game, you know, quite essential. It's one of these games with really one single currency. Uh, and that one currency uh, v- 
tracing its supply and tracing where it is spent throughout the game explains pretty much the entire strategy. And it's quite outstanding and how effective everything ties together, uh, I think. Yeah, and this is one of those cases where less is definitely more because one of the things that in some ways, this is kind of our first time talking about World War One, just as a topic, uh, as a strategy as game a, topic. As a war, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I think one of one of the th- reasons it tends not to be terribly popular is because this is such a pure total war. It is, you know, basically mulching up national resources and turning them into, um, you know, military assets in one form or another. And that's really what this, what that war comes down to, right? Who's going to be the last man standing? Um, who's going to have the last, you know, fresh units hitting the field? Who's going to have the last bullets to fire? Who's going to have the last, you know, draftees that they can pull out? Um, to say nothing of national will, uh, that's that's modeled in this game as well. Though that's a, a separate issue, a little bit. But when when you're dealing with something like that, there, I think there's a tendency uh, in a lot of grand strategy games, perhaps, to create too many systems, to create too much stuff that you got to deal with, like to separate production capacity from recruitment capacity, from you know, you know. It's to say, and to to talk about supply as well. You separate separate that as well. You you create a separate you create a separate system for all of this, but th- the nature of this system, and it's it's I think probably the the core uh, design value throughout this game is that everything is a choice that is zero sum on your on on your side. Like you are always robbing Peter to pay Paul in in this game, and by having everything tied. To production points, you you do two things. First, and this is not to be underestimated, you make it really easy for the player to to see the importance of of you know his or her decisions. This is you know it, it does not take long to understand how to manage your country in uh, in commander. It's it, it's very simple. But the other thing you do is you really sharpen those choices. They aren't two systems working in parallel or that are in de- interdependent. Uh, they are completely joined at the hip. And every turn you're debating: Do I invest in the long term or? Do I feed more troops into the meat grinder? Do I, depl- you know, do 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 I do I, you know, invest in higher technology units that could help me turn the tide of battle somewhere, or you know, do I just get cannon fodder? All of that is is tied together, and it's 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 incredibly it's incredibly elegant. And the 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 question of how to spend your production points, like you say, it's. It's a lot of it is long term versus short term, but it all thought of it also pays into the war strategy, right? I mean, you're like I was playing a game yesterday as the Allies, and I stopped the German offensive uh, in France and Belgium. I was pushing them back. So how do I spend those points? So I get some infantry that I know will hold the line really well in case the Germans mount a counterattack, or do I just buy a lot of really cheap ass garrison units so I can try to sweep around them and do an encirclement and those units, if the Germans come, will end up smashing them. But if they don't come, I get to cut off a bunch of German units from supply, because if they can't trace a route back to yeah. their own territory, they're out of supply, they can't move, and they're really, really hurt. So these choices 
reflect so directly on what you want to do on the map. And the costs are all so transparent, so clear, knowing that it take it will take me like how much money to invest in a new lab for uh, say infantry research. And oh crap, that means I can't buy any artillery this turn, but I really need artillery, or I really need to have uh, more infantry. I'm the Serbs and I'm falling apart. Do I even bother letting the Serbs invest in technology? Just have them just spam a bunch of crappy units. And the answer for Serbia is always spam a bunch of crappy units. Your job is to hold the Austrians off. And it's the way that the, I mean, you can't really see how the AI is spending their stuff, and I kind of wish that it was a little more transparent and how, but I guess it makes sense that I don't know. Uh, but because I think I would understand the game a little bit better, I might be better at it if I knew how the AI was spending its money. But just how well, one simple system that can be traced so clearly, it does make the choices, as you say, very, very stark, and that leads to. Every decision's, an, every decision's an interesting decision to go to the old Meyer maxim, and it's always an important decision. You choosing, you, if you choose to do nothing, that's actually a pretty big decision. Uh, choosing to just let to make do with what you've got, to, to save it, to not burn what's in your pocket, um, is often the hardest choice you can make. Yeah, I, 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 and I think something this game does really well is okay so i think it's very easy to start condemning um pretty much every single person associated with high command in this period it's you know there's there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of rocks you can pick up and throw at people um but something that you know you know i am a sucker for games that sort of make you a little more sympathetic to people who who are kind of backed into bad decisions and a game that can sort of back you into those same decisions uh i'm always a little bit tickled by that because it's kind of like you know as a a player oh i've got i i know how this played out historically i know what they did wrong i'm not going to fall into those same traps but the thing is it's it's sort of amazing like let's take the western front as an example Mm mm-hmm the most static front, like really, there's there's not a lot going on there uh, in some ways for the duration of the game. But the thing is, if you get that cocktail mixture wrong for just a little bit, like you don't have enough artillery, or you haven't researched artillery enough, your your artillery's out, you know, outclassed on this front, or you put too much artillery out there and your line is actually paper thin. It's well supported, but you do not have enough bodies to throw in front of the Mm -hmm. enemy. If you screw this up just a little bit, it can go to shit so incredibly quickly that, you know, that front becomes, (laughs) that becomes a mobile front or it starts to teeter on the verge of becoming a mobile front very quickly. If, if you get any of that wrong. And so there's this, you know, there's places in this game that really, tend toward this inherent conservatism and and lack of imagination by design. Oh, I could try to engineer some sort of breakthrough, you know, up here on the Belgian border, but oh my god, no. That's the, the risk is insane. I can't do it. I better just churn out more infantry and artillery and create more defense in depth and just park them there and, you know, hope that hope that it lasts. That's kind of cool. Especially since, you know, it the game encourages the defensive. The longer units stand still, the more it entrenches. Um, you, it, it, so that temptation to, is it worth it? Uh, this is like a five, the units are ranked in strength from you know zero to 10. If I have a seven strength unit, is it worth just 
reinforcing him and letting him sit there? Or do I push him against the five that's next door on the chance he might be able to break through or weaken it for a cavalry or tank push on the next turn? So the conservatism is really built into the def- It really does capture this defense mechanic that can make this really beautiful push, you know, through the Russian steppe or through Flanders to just come up and stop. I like hitting a brick wall because, you know, the AI's gone defensive or because you've gone defensive and, you know, the AI just runs into it. So these, it, it's really a nice little entrenchment mechanic that is easy to understand. Um, you don't have to invest a lot in it. But if you, barb, if you can research barbed wire to make the entrenchments stronger as they go along, and then there are the counter things. There is the artillery research, and that's kind of why the artillery research is there, because you've got to bust through these entrenchments. Um, and then artillery is just so damn expensive uh, to fire. So you, will, you often use up a lot of power you know, just doing your entrenchment, doing your artillery assaults, and then hope you can attack on the next turn, because it's not often you can do it very well on the same turn. Sometimes you can if you've got enough people and the attack in depth, but often, you know, there's a lot of waiting. You'll, you'll attack, you'll send some gas over, and you'll wait and hope the AI doesn't have the production points to, to increase all of its power. It's really, uh, I mean, like I said, I like how you said how it backs you into making the same stupid decisions. Uh, it's because it really is built into the design to be, you know, kind of pseudo-historical. Though I did have, you know, Austrian units meeting me in Alsace. Uh, yeah, I definitely had. Well, we'll talk. We'll talk about that in a minute because yeah. I'm actually kind of a little bit pleased by that because the AI showed a little more vision than I would have yeah. expected. Uh, but going back to, I think the other part of maybe what contributes to conservatism. This isn't particularly novel, but it's just it's just well handled here. Um, everything you construct in Commander Great War has a construction time. Infantry is fairly fast. It's like three turns. Uh, but anything really more complicated than that takes a little while to arrive on the battlefield. And a lot of your more advanced stuff actually happens... You have to be thinking about when you'll need it like a year in advance. Um, and this, again, sort of creates that situation where... Sometimes you'll have exactly what you need right at hand, and that's great. But a lot of this game is about trying to figure out what you're going to need in six, 12 turns and where you'll need it. And hoping that the situation sort of matches up with your expectations so that these units come off the production line, you can actually make use of them. Uh, but again, if you get too if you get too fancy, right? If you're like, aha, my bombers will blot out the sky and will achieve, you know, I will turn the tide of history by having the first air, you know, air supremacy, uh, you know, c- arrive and just blow you off the map. Um, you could try to do that, and actually, if you can, if you can get like air superiority, uh, those bombing missions can be surprisingly effective. But here's yeah. the problem: if you're sitting there and the Germans are starting to pour through um, Flanders because they finally broken through, and you're just you're just out of dudes, units are starting to break, and you can't you can't repair them fast enough to deal with the attrition, and suddenly all those bombers come to hand. What the hell good are those bombers going to do? <laughs> going to do for you? You know, it's a it's a it's a special purpose unit. And so again, 
this is if, if you're going to try something fancy you really have to think hard about how you're going to carry it off and where you're going to employ it and a lot of times I found myself doing the safe thing which is just like eh, I should probably just throw another infantry or two onto the uh, onto the pile I mean I, the whole idea of you know waiting for the units to come up and knowing when they're coming I mean this is once again like you say backs you into the historical decision especially for the Germans there's no point in the Germans building battleships it completely is a total waste uh, of, I mean, you might want to contest the sea and try to break through, but you really, you just should be making submarines because they're cheap and they're effective. Uh, and the Germans will need all of that excess uh, production to keep the infantry going, uh, to get some bombers. Because for the Germans, you know, if they can get some good effective bombers going fast uh, to mem- go with their artillery, they can break through quite nicely. But you, the Germans investing in anything other than submarines at sea, total waste of time. The British, you know, there since they'll be fighting likely submarines, they'll be wanting to invest in ships to protect the convoys. They will want cruisers because battleships. Once again, you've got enough dreadnoughts. You you have no lack of battleships as the British, uh, so you're going to be making you know smaller ships uh, to help track down the subs. Uh, there's this planning ahead and this thinking, especially when the research comes up, because as you can't research everything at once and you can focus on a couple of things, you know, just put all of your energy into one aspect, but eventually there'll be an announcement, hey, you can research armor now or hey, you can research ship tech now and that's not at the very beginning of the game um, and deciding where to put that focus leads to this long-term planning, counting on your own knowledge of the war and your own expectation but also how the war, where you expect the front to be uh, what you expect your armies to be doing. You know, for the Russians, uh, they will want some fast-moving units. They'll want some cavalry. They will want to put a lot of their energy into cavalry because they have so much ground to cover. Cavalry is not great, but it can cut units off, which is kind of what they need with all that space to work with. The Austrians just want to keep keep the Russians busy because, you know, the Serbs aren't going anywhere. There's this I mean, we're spending a lot of time on the production stuff, and not a whole lot on the war fighting. Well, it's a big but, really, part of the but, game. but it really does tie together just so neatly. Um, and, and I just love how the production isn't just how do, how will I spend this, but it's what is my strategy going to be. It really is a war fighting game. It is a good solid war game. Uh, the diplomatic stuff's completely superfluous, except for you know you're because you have the knowledge of history. If you're the Austrians, you know Italy's going to show up. Uh, so you want to make sure you have the troops in space for in place for Italy. Uh, so there's this great anticipation, and it's the strategy of anticipation. And it's not just the historic knowledge, but the I, I expect I can break through this line in two turns. Therefore, I will need this in five turns. And if the plan goes awry, you don't get those production points back. So it's making do with what you've bought. Um, and you, but you can't just keep churning out men because eventually the tech stuff will catch up with you uh, if the AI invests in it. And you can be bled white in this game. That's the that's the other part uh, of this game, and it really only starts becoming a major factor, I would say, much later. Um, but this does get at the fact that like. Okay, so a lot, a lot is often made of, of how monstrous and sometimes even argued short-sighted uh, the German strategy was uh, some, at times, uh, where you got Falkenhayn basically deciding, okay, we can't achieve a decisive breakthrough. This is not a war maneuver anymore. So we've just got to turn this into a war of attrition and be the last guy standing. Um, 
and this is toward toward the later stage of this game you actually can start to see that strategy bear fruit uh, for the various sides um as you know i think the problem becomes maybe most acute for uh england in in some ways uh because as you keep trying to feed guys into if you decide to do your bit right and try to hold the the northern end of the western front as you keep trying to feed guys in there uh and just taking mauling after mauling toward the end there uh you start to r- receive some some production penalties uh, to to what you're to, to you know global production penalties to to your side based on the fact that hey guess what you've um you, you are now scraping the bottom of the barrel you are cutting deeper now into your society um, and you are no longer able you know it, it's sort of modeling the fact that you know guess what you no longer have able-bodied men you know working every mine and factory now they're they're at war um, you know you know what I mean you you've just you you've you've depleted your country and that can make the end game a little bit apocalyptic if you're um you know if you if you overstretch those resources it ties into the whole national morale system as well how how the war is going and certain actions in the war defeats in the war can reduce you know the national will to fight and that can have you know a crippling effect on the way on, on what's available to you um I was actually playing my Allied game. I at the very beginning of the game, I caught a German battleship outside where yeah. it should not be. Yep. So I sink the German battle group. Then I get a notice: Hey, their national wills hurt because you took down a, you took down a German battleship, a German, German major fleet. This is a big deal. Uh, so that's that's nice to get that news. <laughs> uh, these are these are important. I wasn't going to tie to the production system, but if you fight the war poorly or you just spend callously and not smartly, your country will suffer for that. Uh, So, I mean, it is kind of, it is a game where you have to spend what you've got. But once you've got it, you can't waste it. Every resource is really, really precious because there is kind of a, a limited, if you lose a city, you know, national morale and production is going to fall. I mean, Warsaw falls, and the Russians kind of freak out. For example, yeah. Um, if if you take if your capital falls, you can't produce anything. So if the Germans get to Paris, you know the French can't build any more units to fight back. So it's, then it's all up to the Allies to keep going. Or if Vienna falls, uh, or if Skopje falls. Now they don't have Belgrade as the capital; they have Skopje as the capital for the Serbia. Otherwise, you know, Serbia is really kind of hosed. Yeah. The very beginning, uh, so there's this real push and this emphasis on, you know, wise consumption of what's going on in your in your c- country, but you can't be too cautious, because <laughs> if you're too cautious, uh, then you're just end up wasting what you've got. You, you you can't just let those things just sit around not being spent. Uh, it is it's a game full of tough tough choices. Uh, that reminds you of, I think, in this very simple abstract way, just how tough the options were in this first encounter of total war. Yeah, and I like how the technology feeds into that a little bit too, uh, because as you are forced to choose what kind of war each of your powers is going to fight, 
um, you can start seeing more and more divergence as the war goes on, and certain types of encounter become more and more unfavorable to you as others uh, begin to break more your way. So as England, you're going to want, well, just like the Germans, you know, in your example, there is the temptation to do something with your navy. There is certainly that temptation mm-hmm. to be like, you know, if I could if I could just break the Royal Navy, things would go things would be real different. And that is a <laughs> And they really and they really would. That's the thing. If you can break if they really do it really would make a well, difference. Well and this is this but... is the thought that fascinated the Kaiser, right? Is you know, just like we'd be we'd have a really great strategic position if and if you're playing Britain, you can think like, man, I just I, I need to really upgrade that upgrade that army because my guys are starting to just get like worked every time we're fighting the Germans because the Germans just have like their infantry is getting better and better and I need to keep pace except the problem is as Britain you got to actually stay ahead on that Navy you you've got to you've got to learn you got to make sure the ships are stronger you have to get better at fighting submarines when when they show up like there's a lot of things you have to be concerned about that again sort of back you into this position of well shit now your now your army is just not quite as good as the other continental powers, um, and, and your guys are kind of getting killed in surpri- like in surprising numbers at times, and you just kind of kind of eat that. It's really one of my classes. One of the classic you know strategy game dilemmas. It's do we play to our do we play to our strength or do we shore up our, our weaknesses, and how the game goes for you, how the strategies end up working for you. That often determines you know what research choices you're going to make what you can afford to do and this is you know one of the great things about strategy games and one of my favorite things about historical strategy games is it does you know ask you to put yourself in the place of decision makers and you you can't do everything i mean you want to do everything but you know it's better off you know letting the french focus on some things uh, you know, let the Russians focus on some things. They can't share their technology. Well, you may, maybe it's okay if you just let the French worry about the infantry technology, and they can do all the heavy fighting, and the British can put the energy somewhere else. Um, since you'll be controlling all of them, but there are, it doesn't always pay to make everybody the jack of all trades because there just isn't enough time for that. Uh, labs are really, really expensive. Uh, they'll get you there pretty fast, and there are ways to increase your production, but there's, but they're not something you can always can count on being there. No, and, and and that's something that it's it's interesting. We're we're, we're talking about all this stuff, and I, and I think it's around a very central point, which is yeah. this is a game that makes this particular kind of attrition, this kind of contest of national national resources, really really interesting because it, it captures mm-hmm. all these little facets of how how you go about fighting a war like this and i just i find myself you know really really delighted really delighted by that the this this notion that um that to to your point everyone has to you know everyone to one to some extent yeah it needs to be thinking about how they can specialize how they can be most useful most effective but at the same time there's there's places where where you've just got to commit triage um and, and give up on certain things but then because a lot of this stuff has this tendency to balance out no matter what decisions you're making mm-hmm. your reward in a lot of ways for doing this is achieving a stalemate that's maybe working a little bit in your favor overall maybe not who knows but your reward is basically a stable stalemate on the main front and it sort this game sort of gets you again thinking 
your gaze swings toward these other places now. You know, like, okay, I can't take Germany out. Germany's, Germany's going to be there. I'm stuck with Germany. We're fighting them forever. Great. But I think I can get the Austrians out. Or, I, or more, more realistically, I think I can get the Ottomans out. And then that brings in two things. Um, one is the diversion of military resources now into these other theaters. But the other thing is that they're very different sorts of war. You talked about the Eastern Front, you know, maybe favoring maneuver a, a little more so. But talk about, like, night and day differences. Um, you know, like, the, the British fighting a desert war with the Ottomans is basically a completely different sort of game than what you're seeing happen in the Western Front. It's very much kind of an Africa war game, except it's set in the Arabian Peninsula. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, sort of... It's very easy to lose yourself out there. Um, there there's no real lines. There's there's these scattered pockets, and it's very difficult to... It, it, there, there's these little, like, roads of civilization and supply. But once you... If you stray from that, it's very hard to operate. And it's it's really interesting that it's in the same game, but it feels like a different world. And just the mere choice of where to place your leaders. And we talked about leadership in World War One games a bit uh, a few weeks ago. And in this game, you do get generals, you get commanders, and where you place them can have a great effect on the battlefield. So you have to decide. You know, these are in many ways your, your triage units because they give combat bonuses to the hexes around them. And they can get wounded in battle. So if they get hit, you know, they're kind of they're out for like three or four turns, and that can actually be quite crippling. But deciding where to place them and which front they can do the most good in, it's often you know the most important thing you can do in a turn. Just where does Ludendorff go? Uh, is kind of crucial, and that's it can be it can be really a hard choice. I mean, even on the same front, it's where is the enemy going to be pushing through? Where do I need the extra combat bonus? Um, and that can uh, that really often depends on because they're not there's not a whole lot of variation between the generals. But there's enough. But the big thing is, am I going to be? Am I, do I, am I going to do I want them for this attack, or am I expecting? Or am I, am I expecting an attack? And I need this general to defend. So the changing, the like said, the idea of changing the front and changing where you want to put the energy of the war, um, decides often where you put this very, very precious and scarce resource, especially at the beginning. Eventually, you'll have quite a few generals. But at the very opening of the war, in the first couple of years, you've got maybe one, maybe two. And that is not always enough to fix all of your problems. Um, so I, I really like that, that tough call there, especially, you know, like, as you say, whenever the war opens up. Um, when you have to make these tough calls about, well, crap, now I've got, I, since Germany is in for good and I can't get to Berlin, where can I get to to sap the opponent's morale, to weaken their will to fight because an ally's gone? Yeah, and it definitely, it, it definitely becomes this, the commander almost becomes a marker. Uh, it's like the national focus thing in EU almost, where yeah. where like, when the commanders begin to appear in a certain section of the line or even in a certain front, it is a clear signal like, okay, this is where the war is happening now. This is where things are being decided. Um, and so as the, as the British, almost inevitably, I, I found myself deploying some of my best talent, not to the Western Front, but to Egypt. Uh, because, you know, suddenly it's like, I think I can get things done here. I think with just a little, you know, a little more muscle here, we can we can shove on through. 
Um, but the cost for that, of course, is you're getting chewed up a little more by German commanders who are who've stayed on the Western Front, and suddenly your army's got much less leadership. Um, I, I, I I love that. I, I love the way that that tends to function. Um, I will say, you 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 called out to it a little bit earlier. Um, the AI is not is not shy about shifting its forces among its fronts. Um, I had, I was very surprised that my particular version as the allies, uh, my particular version of the, the, the war in, uh, Palestine and, uh, and, and Arabia basically turned into a war with the Germans at some point, like not even like, not even a few, like not even like a few scattered German infantry units showing up to maybe help out the Ottomans, but it was like full on, like, oh my God, like, what are all, what are all you Germans doing down here? Where'd the Ottomans go? This is ridiculous. <laughs> but that's that's how it tended to break down. I mean, I'd be fighting uh, on the Eastern Front against the Germans and the Western Front against the Germans. And then all of a sudden, one front gets really light and the other one gets really heavy. And a few turns later, it switches back. So it's like there's a few units that seem to be shifting back and forth quite heavily. Um, and like the seeing Austrians pop up in Belgium. Well, that's kind of a nice surprise, but, you know, you were really, really close to knocking Serbia out. Um, So the AI does fight relatively smart in that it tries to prevent a major breakthrough, but it sometimes has a lack of focus, I think, um, in understanding that, you know, if if it would help to actually knock somebody completely out, that if, if France is going okay, it's all right to just focus and knock the Russians out and then bring those guys back later. Um, and you know there are, there are all kinds of weird shifts. I, mean, I didn't see the Germans uh, in Turkey, but it would not. But I did see a few Austrians, which isn't quite as surprising since you know it's closer. But it's there are these really weird movements um, at playing as uh, the central powers, seeing a bunch of French troops show up in Serbia, for example. You know they go down to Marseille, I guess, and then take the boats across which was fine because my Western offensive as Germany kind of stalled, so I guess they could spare a few guys. Uh, there's a lot of shifting around and moving that I guess historically doesn't make a lot of sense, but since you are playing, you know, as the alliance, even though the production stuff is kept nationally, it didn't bother me a whole lot. It was kind of neat. I suppose the Ottomans could have stayed in the war historically better if, you know, more Germans had showed up. But then, makes, then because you can't see what's going on inside the country, your, en- your enemies, I have to ask myself, where are they coming yeah. from? And I kind of wish I knew where the enemy troops were coming from. How, I mean, what their production totals were and how much they were spending. And then I could, are these new units? Are these old units that are being moved around? I guess I like a little more transparency. This is a game that doesn't have a lot of menus. I mean, the manual is super, super short. Um, but, you know, sometimes I was, I'd see so many German units pop around and moving. I'd ask myself, am I missing a mobilization button? Is there something in here that's new that I've forgotten? So I looked through the, I looked through the manual, looked through all the menus, and no, it's just the same old straightforward buy what you can. Um, but it does, ask, it does raise a few questions about, you know, AI focus, AI attention, but not that the AI is bad, not that it's a, not that it's a poor opponent. It's actually a pretty robust opponent uh, on the normal difficulty. But it's a little bit of weirdness. 
Yeah, I suspect it's a bit of a necessary evil. Honestly, watching the AI in some ways think it plays more like I would. Okay. Right? Yeah. Where it doesn't view like it doesn't have this notion of national interests. Right. It's playing its side. Right. Um and you can make the argument, right, that like things might have gone a little bit better for everyone if people had thought more along those lines, thinking like, hey, we're all on the same side here, where the resources need to be. And But this is why you never find Austrian troops doing jack on the Western Front, really, right? Like the Austrians have their own, their own stuff to deal with in the Balkans and um, down on the Italian Front. But the AI treats it like, this fungible resource. Hey, I need troops here. And hey, look, there's some Austrian guys over there. So whoop, here's some Austrians that were done. Have fun. Yeah. Um, and, you know, hey, I've, I've definitely I've definitely played that way, uh, you know, at, at times myself. But it, it does it, it does at times just seem to lack a little bit of that strategic vision, maybe. But at, at the same time, I. I I've always I'm faulting it because it is so hard to achieve decisive results in this game, even if you do have that sort of consistency. Um, you know, I thought I thought the uh, the AI was was tending to I, an interesting thing happened to me uh, in, in the later stages of the war, where suddenly the Germans kind of just stopped doing anything on the Western Front. Like one minute I was really hard pressed. Uh, the Red Baron was out there. There's just a lot of like heavy artillery. That train artillery is just world ending. Like when when the when the massive like rail guns, uh, railway artillery shows up, you're screwed. Like you're in for it. But suddenly all that stuff vanished uh, for a little bit, and I was like, "What the hell is going on?" Okay, I guess I'll just reinforce and I'll start getting ready to maybe launch a counteroffensive. Great, whatever. Um, and then two turns later. A ton of that stuff shows up in uh, on the Italian front, and suddenly my little Italian army that was doing a fine job maintaining the stalemate and everything, in the space of like a turn, just got blown out of the water. Like it was, and again that whole that whole action reaction delay, uh, because I hadn't been expecting that is Italy, or even thought it was really a possibility because those fronts had seemed so discreet. Um, I only had. A little bit, really, uh, coming up online as Italy, and I, I, I hadn't. I invested more in maybe upping my artillery, in providing some air support, because again, you start thinking about ways you can wage that war a little more efficiently. And then suddenly, all these German troops show up, a ton of artillery shows up, tanks show up, bombers show up, and they just smashed my my poor little Italians, and they they took Milan. They achieved a decisive breakthrough. Um, I haven't finished that game. Um, Italy might be screwed. Like I am establishing another line, um, you know, south of south of Milan. But it was it was this really cool. Like, oh wow, I didn't really because I fell into the trap of sort of viewing it the way you view these fronts historically, right? Where they're sort of discrete resources; they don't really interact with each other. But the AI was like, eh, hell with it. Like, why not send Richthofen and a few train guns and all that stuff? Why not send that down there and see what happens? Um, and it, it rocked me. The war fighting is actually... I think you're right. They do see, see it as one front, and they do look for opportunities. I think that explains, you know, the the Austrians on the on the speedy rail from Vienna, on, on, the, on the last express from Vienna to Berlin. 
and then scooting around wherever they need to go because they just look for every opportunity to you know to, to, to plug holes or to find a weakness. And I think that's probably the best way to play the game as a human as well. There's so much of this game is about about, about counter about reacting to a counter. You know the enemy the enemy artillery is great, so you might want to focus on counter barrage research. So if your artillery gets like a free shot whenever your uh, opponent, whenever your your army is targeted by artillery. Um, the enemy's, you know, investing in bombers and zeppelins. Well, then you want to put your stuff into fighters. So much of this game is about looking for the opportunity and, you know, countering it. And like you said before, you know, all the enemy, all the German generals are in the West. So where do I put my generals? Do I counter or do I look for a weakness on their side? There's this, it's actually a nice delicate balance between looking for what few opportunities pop up and exploiting them and just making sure you're not caught with your pants down. Uh, because when a breakthrough happens, it can happen pretty fast and it won't often be enough to push all of the way because of the way the game does favor the defense. But it can be enough to shake you to your core and sometimes force you to make some really inopportune spending choices. Or you're, you're saving up for factories to invest in ammunition so you can fire your artillery more. But crap, now I need more. Now I need more infantry. So you just start spamming garrison troops instead of sticking with your plan. Sometimes you got to abandon the plan, but sometimes you just got to you know trust that things will hold. Um, there's this always this this debate, this internal debate over you know is this a chance? Or is this a delaying tactic? You know, what what am I looking at? It is inter- it is understanding the map, and because it is such a clear game, because so much is transparent, you all you know what you're looking at, but you're not always sure what exactly it means for you in two or three turns time. This isn't you know a Europa Universalis type game, or a Hearts of Iron game, or a Civilization game, or you know an Age Odd game where. There's just so much information, so you pick a plan and you stick with it, and you tweak the country to what needs to work. It is a simple war. It's all about the war. There's no diplomacy. There's no politics really beyond keeping your national will strong. It is looking at the information in front of you and translating that into this very simple spreadsheet over what you should be doing and where you should be doing it. And if you play those cards right, it does sort of get at how you can begin turning the tide of this damn thing, yeah. how you begin to break the stalemate. Because if you can start achieving little successes and building building from them, it's it's like, you know, it, it's like each alliance is really this is really the scaffold, right? Standing on all these like support struts and pillars. And if you can just start kicking at these things, you know, and you know, in 1914, 1915, everything will seem rock steady. You can't you, you can't seem to do you can't seem to get anything. But toward that middle of the war, you start seeing these things break. You start seeing certain pillars start to crumble. You know, and as that begins to happen, suddenly that front opens up a little more. Like the, the classic example is if you can get the Ottomans knocked out, the dominoes start to fall very fast because the entire the entire central alliance uh, power structure just begins to unravel. It, it's 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 su- its southern and eastern fr- flank just starts to come undone uh, because you have managed to achieve some sort of decisive result 
in the Middle East, which then makes it easier to achieve results in Southern Europe, which, and at that point, you know, at that point, the timer started, you know, like the, the, this is going to be very hard to stabilize. Um, and so it becomes about this whole, like, you, 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 you may not be able to knock out the main players in this war, but if you can bloody their little friends and bully them out of the war, you can maybe start to achieve those decisive results that are so elusive on the main stage. A lot of this game is about f- finding the weakest person in the alliance and knocking them out. Um, and often that's Russia. If we're playing the Central Powers, you know, if you can get the, the, some Tannenberg-type result and you destroy the Russians in the East in 1914, 1915, their national will is going to collapse. You know, you move into Warsaw, you keep pushing into the big Russian cities, and you can you know, get the revolution going and just take them out entirely. And if you're lucky and smart, you can get a March 1918 situation, like 1916. You can push all those German troops over to the West or... Towards Italy, I guess. I never considered that as an option, but now I know. Now I know I should. Uh, I mean, there really is this. Yeah, you can't take out the the big dogs early, but you know, look for their weak their weak little puppy friends, yep. and uh, do the smart thing. Um, find just keep nitpicking over and over again, just trying to get the decisive result somewhere. You won't be able to always get. You often won't get a decisive result where you think it matters. So the trick is realizing, I mean, once again, Churchillian thinking, it all matters. Yeah, Gallipoli was a bad idea, and it's on its own, but the logic was strong. You know, get a decisive victory somewhere, and then translate that into a larger win. Exactly. And it's... And because it, 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 it does a wonderful job illustrating the limitations of these great powers, right? Yeah, France can send troops into Italy. France can fight that war. And France can probably fight that war and maintain the Western Front pretty well. But then what about that third thing? What about that third thing that begins to request on its resources? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like a lot, of, a lot of Austrian troops are tied up in the Balkans, but your Balkan allies are not strong. They are going to begin to fail. So do you keep that front open or not? And if you're going to keep it open, who's going to do it? Who's going to put the troops on the ships and sail over into the Balkans and northern Greece to keep that war hot? And keep those Austrian troops tied down. Um, and if France is already involved in Italy, it can't be France. It's got to be someone else. But who's who's going to take that bullet? And then who, where are they going to be weak? Um, it's just it's it's a really cool like these are difficult themes to draw out because World War One is this is this big picture and it, it's really easy to get caught up looking at the minutiae without seeing the whole. You know what I mean? Like it, You see it even in the historiography of World War I, where you will have entire campaign, like, you will have books that really detail um, you know, what happens with Gallipoli, the campaign in the Middle East, uh, the Western Front. It is very hard for, for a lot of authors to bring it all together in a coherent picture, and there's a good reason for this. This is a war where it's very difficult to see the whole forest for all these trees. And this game does such a lovely job of, of of making that picture clear and comprehensible to you. Um, you know, I really I really can't say enough good things about it. Yeah, I mean, one of the, I mean, there's you know, there's always the usual you know strategy gamer trick, of course, because you can see everything that you know you might decide. You know, the Russian front 
all you've got to do is hold the Germans, keep the Germans, you know, distracted. So you can just spam it with garrison troops uh, to keep them occupied, but really focus your energies on, you know, knocking them out in the West or the Middle East or the Balkans. This decision of where are you willing to not spend a lot of attention? Because uh, you, you can do that. Um, you know, the AIs, it's, it's good, but it's also, you know, and it won't get fixated on a front. But like most AIs, you can find ways to just keep it busy. And, you know, I've often done that with, I've found that's often a good way to play the Russians because you have so much land to cover. You're better off just not worrying about research or anything because Berlin's too far away and you have to worry about Austria and Turkey and Germany. Just keep spamming troops and don't modernize your army, uh, which will lead to a lot of casualties. But hopefully there will be enough progress in other places that it won't prove to be that much of a problem. As long as you can hold your cities and hold and have a static, even have, build a static defense in the east uh, and hopefully try to open up the west because that's often where the big successful push uh, is going to be from Belgium, France, and Britain because you know, the British troops have to land someplace close so that they don't get hit by submarines. It's really disappointing to lose a transport to a submarine, by the way. Very, very disappointing. Uh, that really hurts a lot uh, to lose, you know, six or seven of ten troops to a submarine hit. I, I actually probably overprotected my transports a little bit with, with cruisers uh, w- when I had them, um, and I sort of let the convoys fend for themselves a little bit because mm-hmm. I was so paranoid about the transports every time. But, you know, to, to your point about, like, you know, how Russia can sort of fall back in its defensive posture, I would agree with that more except for... I felt like I was doing the same sort of logic with the Italian front, mm-hmm. and the game came and just kicked my... You know what I mean? Right. It's like one of those things where you feel... You can feel complacent. You can be like, yeah, I, I'm just going to kick back here and hold this line, and this is a good exchange, and it'll open things up elsewhere. And then the AI kind of came and just kicked that door down. Um, and, and I feel like that, that same sort of thing can happen with, with Russia a, a, a little bit, because... The other thing, I, 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 as much as this game does model defender's advantage, I think it also talks about the importance of attack because you you do more damage on the attack in a lot of ways. Like if an attack goes really well, attacking is how you destroy units. Defending is how you grind them down, but attacking is how you shatter them. And that's that's the flip side of this. You can't. This is you know again. Game backs you in dilemmas. Why? Why? Why do the Germans launch? Why? Why do the Germans go all in at Verdun? Uh, why do the Why do the um, British keep attacking at um, Ypres and uh, and the Somme? Why do they do it? Because they don't have a choice. This is This is the only way you achieve decisive tactical results. As bloody as it is, you eventually have to suck it up and go and try to smash the other guy. Even though you guys are going to get chewed up doing it, this is how you break them. Yeah, there's this, it's a really a, the attack is important. A lot of the game is, you know, looking for that opportunity, that one point where you can attack. Because you can't attack along a wide front. No. I mean, that's really a great way. This This is no game with fronts moving. This is about finding a salient and pushing through it and trying to get around uh, the enemy, forcing them 
to adjust their defense, forcing them to move their units, then they won't be entrenched anymore, and then you can do more damage on the attacks. Yes. This is not a game where you level everything up and then push forward in increments. This is, I think, mean, a lot of like, it's a lot of, like unity of command. It's about finding the spot where you can bust through and encircle and des- and destroy the enemy. Um, only it's quite difficult and requires quite a bit of research and a bit of a gamble. Yeah. Um, but I really love that. This is, to your point about salience, I, I do kind of feel like this is, there, there are times, I like how small the map is in some ways. There's not a ton of hexes. The Western Front is described in, what is it, a dozen hexes vertically? Something like that, yeah. That, yeah, it's not big. This is, a, this is a very small, it's a small map. It's all of Europe from, yeah. and it has across the Atlantic where the convoys are coming, but it's pretty much Europe from, you know, Iberia to uh, the Urals. Yeah, it's it's not real big. Uh, but the thing is, because you got that hex effect and everything, and to an extent, a lot of World War One action does end up taking place along salience. Yeah. Like there's there's certain there's certain little triangles on both sides yeah. that just become these charnel houses because they're always the most the easiest place to attack from, um, and the hardest things to defend. But at the same time, I do kind of wish like it, it's sort of that it's sort of that um, it's that it's that hex game thing, right? Where you try to get them on three sides, and there's some place where you have no choice. You'll always have unit sort of stuck out there uh, on three sides, and once you clear that salient, you can never attack beyond it because now you're now you're facing two hexes, and there's no way to get any kind of you know mass numbers in your favor, and that is a little bit World War One like. Yeah. it's very World War One like, uh, but at the same time, there there are moments where I'm like, damn, I wish I wish I had a little more room to maneuver because it kind of feels like cutting off tips of people's noses constantly, like just endlessly in this game. It's very claustrophobic, uh, especially on the on the Western Front, because unless, you know, you declare war on the, on the Netherlands, just to get that extra hex, that extra bit of space. Uh, do you think there's a bit of a psychological effect? Like, do you think that, do, like, do you think there's a bit of psychological claustrophobia happening with high commanders in this period as well? Because I definitely start to feel like as the allies, like I can't do anything on the Western Front. Like I can't, I can't move. I can't, it's just a slaughterhouse. And then you start looking at like how you can deploy units in the Middle East and everything. And you're like, oh, there's so much room to deploy an army and get it unfolded into a big line. Oh, it feels so luxurious. Well, that's kind of great, right? I mean, that's kind of, it pushes you to explore the other fronts to see what you can do somewhere else. Maybe say a, send a British expeditionary force to, to northern Poland. You know, to help out the Russians. Because you control the seas, why not? You control the Baltic. Um, I, I really love how you can't attack ships in port. And you can, but you get screwed if you do it. So often the big thing is just keeping the enemy ships where they are. So you can just run, you can just control the seas. So I've, I've often, you know, sent British troops into, you know, northern Europe and done my landings there. Uh, it's it's to just find that room, to find that space, which there is never quite enough uh, on the Western Front. I mean, I, I've never declared war in the Netherlands, but I have honestly thought about it just to get that Belgian troop, you know, one more hex over, um, hoping I could knock them out. With my luck, you know, the Dutch would just destroy me. Um, and that would be one more place for, for me to meet Austrian troops. Yeah, as the British, I lost 
uh, I got the Belgians to leave the war accidentally just because uh, I panicked when the subs started showing up. Well, it was a justifiable panic, right. right? Like, I was suddenly like, oh, wow, my economy is tanking. Like, I need to get cruisers out there. And so I started crash built cruisers. Um, and then suddenly I just didn't have enough troops fighting in, uh, you know, in, in Belgium and, and northern France to keep things going. And, uh, you know, once once you get knocked out of Belgium entirely, and uh, their their unit gets their units get beaten up pretty hard, um, they call it a day. Um, and by that point, they're probably irrelevant. But it was still like, oh shit! Like I <laughs> kind of messed that up. You, you gotta follow. You gotta pay attention to that national will thing. Once Brussels is out, you know the, the Belgians need quite a bit of support. If they kept kept getting beaten on, they're gone. The Germans can run roughshod over them. Um, and it just does a number on all of your chances. You've got to keep you got to keep British active. Um, uh, how did you think of the air war? You know, I actually wanted to ask you, you, you about this too. Um, I mean, you you've mentioned the power of bombers, which we both agree on. We had did a show on the air war last week, and it kind of feels a bit over like a sideshow and a bit like not. I'm not quite sure if it's overpowered or underpowered. Uh, if it's useful or not, this because is... the, because the planes are they just attack. You can't scout with planes, really. No. If I could if I could scout with planes, then I might find them more. But the, with fighters. the game is so that might be more useful. But it's really about combat. So I have fighter planes that just can't do a whole lot until I get bombers. But you start with fighters and not bombers. You can't well, the Germans start with zeppelins. So there's really no you have fighters that. Aren't good for much unless somebody builds bombers, which someone's going to build. But if you don't build bombers, yeah, it's um, it's kind of okay. It's an, okay, now you're turning me around on it, actually, because at for, like my take on it was, I felt like once you had bombers in play and you got right. all the tools of the air war, it felt a little overpowered to me, just a little it bit. Does, like it, it does get to be really, really World War Two. When you, when you can it start can hitting be. targets with multiple rounds of bombers in a single turn, you're really putting the hammer to people. Um, it's, even, it's even better than tanks. Oh, God, yeah. No, tank, tanks tanks show up, and they're, they're, they're when they work, they really work. But a lot of times, again, I guess it's historical, a lot of times it's just like, well, that didn't, that didn't break through at all. Um. But yeah, if you can get the bombers deployed in, in large enough numbers, um, they they just do like pure damage uh, to to enemy units unless there's fighters. Um, and if there's fighters nearby, it's it's sort of repeated the artillery dynamic. Uh, a, a bomber goes up, and all the fighters nearby on both sides get sort of get sucked into the air battle. Um, and if you can have more fighters and grind them down, your bombers can your bombers can do great work. And uh, zeppelins as well. I found they have sort a moderate impact on um, have a moderate impact on national will. But uh, I actually found them far more interesting as sub hunters. Uh, you know, for the, for the Brits. Um, they were they were fantastically effective at clearing subs out of uh, the the approaches to the aisles. So it, it's interesting. Like you're you're totally right. Like their early war purposes. Um, it is a total sideshow because the scale this game is aerial recon wouldn't have a role to play 
You know what I mean? It's sort of built in. Like you can see into I, I the know, next I, house. I, 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 I kind of like to see, you know, where the where those freaking Austrians are coming from. You just you just want the curtain pulled back. I, I want a little more information, I guess. And if, and help me if the cores were named, for example. You know, which core is this? You know, that actually that would. If it was if it was not generic like German infantry, if it yeah. was actually like, oh, okay, so first army rotated out here and but but I understand why I understand why they don't have that because you don't need that. That's not necessarily useful information because the units aren't distinguished no, from it, each it, other. It They're just my interchangeable worst OCD as yeah. well. But you know, it does give me a little bit more information on okay, this is a unit that this is the first core, then that means that they aren't, you know, near Vienna where they were, so I have a chance to push now. That sort of little bit of information. Uh, might be not. I'm not saying it's essential or make the game that much better, but it's you know a little bit of insight, um, which wouldn't hurt. Yeah, I, think. I would. I'm not sure. I'm, just, I'm not sure. It would add a lot, but it might add just enough information to make me think in more strategic terms instead of, well, here's another infantry. Where did it come from? It just becomes this great puzzle, which is fine. I don't mind strategic puzzles, but occasionally, I'd like to have. A little one more one more data point, I think would help me a little bit more. Yeah, uh, but I, I think as far as air power goes, I think it's a, a bit of a a bit of a wash in some ways, in a good way. It, it, it yeah. ends up becoming another part of the uh, tactical picture and an interesting one, and mm-hmm. it does sort of offer yet again that promise of breaking a stalemate. Like if you could get a fleet of bombers up there, and it's expensive and it takes time, but if you get a fleet yeah. of bombers out there. You could just start shattering units on the Western Front. You just pick pick it pick part of the line yep. and just hammer it to death. Great. Um, so I, I I kind of like that. I have no idea whether that ever would have been a reasonable expectation given the technology of the time. Like yes, they did start building heavy bombers. Uh, I just did a preview on a game for, uh, called Ilya Muromets uh, mm-hmm. from the Rise of Flight guys. It's covering the uh, Russian heavy bomber of the same name, uh, and apparently you know. If you were sort of the first one to the battle with a bomber that could actually carry, uh, a you know, a, tons of high explosive, it was it was a pretty major advantage. But I just, I I I never felt, you know, what I mean, like it, my BS detector kind of went off when I started having bombers like doing three points of damage to German infantry sitting out there. I was like, come on, that doesn't that seems a little bit overstated, uh, but. It's, you know, it becomes another interesting way to invest your resources, um, and I, I think that's I think that's good. Sounds good. Uh, so yeah, you know, I, I I came to this game with you know modest expectations, and it just it, because because you you look at it and it looks quite. I'm not going to say ugly, <laughs> unimpressive. Yeah, I think part of it is also it just it triggered all my. This is the this is this is something I hate about me, right? Is that I have who could hate anything about you? Well, exactly, really. Uh, but I I have we, we we both go on sometimes about how really hardcore grognardy grognardy war games just kind of piss us off, right? Like they're so deliberately obscurantist and user unfriendly, and almost like take pride sometimes in, in how unapproachable they are, and that can be frustrating. But then I see a game like this with you know low unit count and kind of simple map and you know simple you know fairly simple mechanics, and part of me is like, oh, it's a baby game. 
That, that doesn't look that doesn't look like much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and it's completely it's completely wrongheaded and it sets me up for surprises like this, I guess, because no, it's it's not a baby game. It is it is a game of elegant simplicity. Um that I you know, I am going to be playing for quite a bit because it's an interesting how do you win this damn war, Troy? It's an interesting puzzle. It is a great puzzle. Um it's you know, it's one of the great military puzzles uh of the century, right? It's could we have could this war have gone differently, um and better? And a lot of this game does follow the historical pattern and does force you into historical choices, but they're not it's not obscenely railroaded. Everything makes perfect sense within both the history and the context of the system. And it's just kind of neat to get your ass handed to you a few times and then understand what's going on because all the information's in front of you. You just got to make sure you're reading it right. Uh, so I kind of like that about a game like this where it is about reading the map and reading the information and understanding everything. And nothing's really hidden beyond, you know, some enemy movements uh, in the fog of war. I really like, this is so old school, I guess, and how transparent it is, how open it is, and how it forces these strategic decisions, your strategic decisions, really right out into the open. Um, and they're clear and they're distinct, but you have a lot of options available to you. You know, there's the, where, where do I fight? What do I fight with? Do I spend now? Do I spend later? Do I spam units? Do I save up for good units? There's this, every decision you make is clear. It is impactful immediately, or because even if you decide to spend on units that aren't going to be available in five turns, that is affecting you right now because you can't, I just spent all my Production points, I can't fire our artillery this turn. Woohoo! Uh, that kind of sucks. You always got to save, you know, 10, 10, you have to leave 10 ammunition over just so you can uh, build, or so you can have artillery. Uh, it is, it's kind of a little gem, and it works really well on the iPad too because the information is so clear. Uh, it is just where do you want the units to go uh, most of the time. So as an iPad game, I quite recommend it. Yeah, and I just pulled it up on Steam, and it's thirty dollars there, um, and totally worth it, uh, I think, and definitely one if you catch it on sale, uh, well worth a look because um, it is just, you know, it, it's that perfect sweet spot uh, for me uh, of just it, it has really, really deep insights into the war. Uh, and yet it doesn't belabor any of its points and it's never a chore to play, you know, for, for a game that's so much about just grinding it out and like, you know, bloody yard by yard, um, it plays incredibly fast. Uh, and it's just, it's, it's, it's really impressive. Uh, so yeah, I think I'm fantastically happy that we found such a good, uh, a good war game to play for an actual war game, no less, uh, for, for the, uh, Guns of August month. Uh, we'll be back next week with a topic that I think, Troy, you and I have to work out a little bit still, uh, but I think in two weeks we were talking about doing a listener Q&A, uh, and Troy, when can, where can listeners send their questions? Uh, if you want to send questions to uh, us for the Q&A show in two weeks' time, you can send them to my Ask FM page, ask.fm slash Troy Goodfellow. Just say it's a question for the podcast, and I will uh, save it for later. You can email me at troy.goodfellow at gmail.com. Uh, do we want to start a thread in the forum or not? Uh, 
yeah, there will be a, there will be a thread in the forum. Uh, I'm sure we will be able to take care of that by the time this episode goes up. And uh, you can also send email to 3ma at idlethumbs.net. Uh, but yes, in two weeks' time, we are going to look over what we've got, and we're going to do a little Q and A show. And out of all your questions, uh, Troy, how many do you think we're going to be able to get through? Usually, judging by our previous shows, we've gotten through three. Our record is uh, three, right? We've I think we've gotten to five once. Okay. But generally, but I think we should try maybe the longer show because we've done some really long shows lately, and try to answer you know seven or ten. Yeah, I'm, but, I'm but, okay with that. I, we, we still have questions left over from last time. Uh, but they're stale. Pre- they're dead. They're, they're, they're question ma- croutons. Many, many of them are, not all of them. But anyway, we do recommend you uh, send more questions in because we have a lot more listeners. People keep listening and our subscriptions keep growing and we love it. So please uh, throw any questions about strategy games or I guess because Rob's here uh, cooking and cocktails. <laughs> And we're, we're always ready to talk more World War I. Because, uh, Troy, I have a question for you, and I want you to think about it now. Okay. Michael uh, uh, Hastings, uh, is it Max Hastings? Yes, Max Hastings, in Catastrophe 1914, makes the claim that the Schlieffen plan was basically garbage and never would have worked given the technological constraints of the period. Agree or disagree? Uh-huh. So this is something we will have to discuss perhaps next week. Uh, perhaps we'll survey some World War One games, discuss some various topics of interest. Uh, but something I want us all, this is our homework. The, did it make sense? Was it, was it a rational hope? Uh, we will answer that at some point in the next two weeks on Three Moves Ahead. And I think it will be a definitive answer that will resound through the ages uh, and render obsolete many of the history books that we could recommend you read. Uh, until that time, this has been Three Moves Ahead, and thank you so much for joining us. This has been a blast. Uh, good night. Night. Blippity bloppity blue. There it is.